Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast, brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, part of the desert community for over 70 years. I'm Marty Lachman, and I will be talking today to Tony Ogrodnik, General Manager of Bighorn Golf Club. We have talked about highlighting the members of our community and the twists and turns that have brought them to Bighorn. But also in Tony's case, since leadership is such an important part of our community's success, both in the past, but also in our collective future. I believe it is important that we have a greater connection to the people that work tirelessly behind the scenes to contribute to our positive experience at Bighorn. Tony, even though your life and career is still evolving and growing, I would appreciate you sharing with us stories and experiences starting in Colorado Springs that have brought you to this point. Thanks, Marty. Uh, yeah, I was uh, born in Colorado Springs in 1971, and my father was from uh, Middletown, New York. And when he was 18 years old, he joined the military, and he was stationed in Fort Carson, Colorado. And that's where he met my mother who was the oldest of eight children, and uh, she was a part of a military family. And they moved around quite a bit, but at this point they've, they've settled in Colorado Springs. So my parents met very young. I think my dad was 20 and my mom was 17. They married a year or two later. Had a total of three children, I'm in the middle, I have two sisters. And shortly after they were married, my older sister was on the way and my father did a tour of duty in Vietnam in 1969. Obviously he survived and came back to Colorado Springs and met his baby girl for the first time. Fast forward a few years, when I was six years old, uh, we relocated to Broomfield, Colorado, which is where I grew up and my dad still lives in that house today. So we relocated, my, my, my father started a new career. He was going to work for a company called Circulation Marketing Incorporated. Their uh, business was to build up circulation for newspapers and actually Denver was, it was a great environment for that business because uh, there was a uh, real newspaper war between the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. And my dad's company, he, he ended up being the CEO of the Denver account, uh, contracted with the Denver Post to build up their circulation. So, you know, that was a real competitive time for the newspaper business in the 70s and 80s. And what, like I said, his, his task was to build up the circulation. So they did that with sales crews and he would get teenagers and young adults and they'd go all over the state and sell the newspaper door to door. My mother, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, for most of my childhood, and she did a great job raising the three kids. My dad worked a lot, went to the office in the morning, and then ran the sales crews six nights a week and usually got home somewhere between 10 or 11. He always took Sunday off, but uh, put in a lot of hours and a lot of time. And as time went on, he would free up time for other things. Most of my childhood was very normal. I had good friends, played all the sports. And at a young age, I, I did start going to work with my dad a couple days a week with the crew, teenagers and young adults. I'd be in the van and would have a great time. And at a really early age, I started selling newspaper subscriptions door to door. I, I actually called my father and asked him when I started. He thought I was about eight years old. Anyway, he'd get dropped off on the street and he'd go knock on doors and try to sell a newspaper subscription and win a trip to Disneyland. And I did that off and on through all my teenage years. And it was a great experience. You learn a lot of, about people when, when you go to their house and knock on their door in the middle of dinner and try to sell them something and collect money great experience, interesting people. You get chased by dogs, you get yelled at. I think I was mugged once. You're sneaking into high rises trying to sell the paper. And, um, it was interesting. The crew my father ran 
it was all types of individuals. And like I said, they were young and it was a unique group. But I, I really enjoyed that part of my life and uh, it really taught me how to deal with people and ultimately not be afraid of people. So that was a great experience. Golf came into my life. Um, I started playing with my dad when I was about uh, 12. I, I enjoyed it, I, I just, I was doing other things and playing other sports. And uh, within the next year or two, I had a lot of uh, just injuries. And I decided um, about the summer before my freshman year of college, probably a little before that I wanted to, you know, give golf a try. And my, my, my dad had joined a, a country club uh, kind of near the house in a town called Westminster, Colorado. It's called the Ranch Country Club. And I started going up there every day and hitting balls all day long. The end of June, my, my dad got the club bill and he saw all the charges for range balls. And he went to the club pro at the time and said that, could we have an arrangement where Tony could work for free, you know, work for range balls? And the pro's eyes lit up as big as saucers and said, absolutely, we can work something out. So three or four nights a week, I would pick the range and hit all the golf balls I could. It was, it was, it was cool. And I was, you know, new to the game. I got to the point right before my freshman year of high school that I could, on a good day, barely break 100. And I was pretty proud of that because I hadn't been doing it for that long. And I went and tried out for the high school team. And kids my age were just hitting the ball unbelievably far. And I was just sitting there watching and going, oh my gosh, what did I get into? Well, I, you know, I tried out for the team and I made the freshman team. And I really uh, wanted to get better. And, and I did. And by my sophomore year, I got down to where I could shoot between probably 82 and 85 on a consistent basis. And I played some JV tournaments. By the time I, I got to my senior year, I, I could shoot even par. You know, I wouldn't do it every event, but I, I could have good rounds. And, you know, as an average ball striker, I had a really good short game. And really how I putted determined how well I shot, like all of us. But um, I won a couple tournaments as a senior, and I accepted a scholarship to a junior college. It was a, a small school, and you know, playing on a sports team, the, the coach kind of looked after you and made sure you were keeping up on your grades. I lived in the dorms and made some good friends. You know, they lived in real rural areas in Kansas, Nebraska, and Colorado. And when we weren't in season, we'd, we'd go to their ranches and feedlots and, and work just to try to make a few bucks for some spending money. And it was work. I and mean, you'd get up at 4:35 in the morning. You know, work a tw 10, 12-hour day, go back to the ranch and have some dinner, and you slept like a baby. Those were good times. So uh, during my college career at Northeastern, I won two golf tournaments. You know, I had some interest from some small schools, but I really had my heart set on going to the University of Colorado. You know, kind of grew up, you know, 15, 20 minutes from the campus, and it was always something I wanted to do. And my grades were good enough in college to get accepted. The CU golf team at the time was good and ranked in the top 25. And I had known the coach through high school tournaments. And the best case scenario for me would have been to make the team if, you know, barely make the team and be the 11th or 12th man and never travel. So I, I knew at the time that, you know, I, I wasn't that important for me to continue my golf career. I'd gotten a lot out of my game in a short period of time. And uh, I enjoyed it, but I was just looking forward to moving on and finishing school. And that's what I did. I, I transferred to the University of Colorado, and I continued to work at the Ranch Country Club, uh, you know, since I was 13 or 14. And I eventually got a paying job. Did it, well, I worked for free for one year, and then uh, they started paying me which was nice. And whenever I was broke, I'd go sell the paper door to door and make a few bucks. So it was always nice to have that option. You know, I was able to buy my own car and pay my insurance and, and things like that at a young age. So then I, I transferred to uh, the University of Colorado and 
that's where I finished out my degree, and I graduated in August of 1994. Well, it sounds too, Tony, that you were really taught, first of all, a great work ethic, and at a very early age went out and, and was part of that workforce, but also many th- times these things are born out of necessity. If you want to do something, you have to go and work for it, and it sounds every step of the way, although it's ironic that you never really left that golf job, even through all this, uh, you know, playing golf, uh, going to a JC, going back to Colorado to finish your education. The golf course situation was always part of your life. You know, it was, and it's funny you bring that up because I, I came back from my first year of college, and, you know, I wanted to try to save up some money and, and do something different, so I actually quit the golf course. Uh, not for a very long period of time. Uh, one of my aunt's close friends uh, started this company called Student Movers when she was in uh, grad school at the University of Colorado. And his warehouse was down on Blake Street in downtown Denver, which now it's where Coors Field is. So he ended up doing very well for himself. But I was hired with Student Movers, and I did that for about a month. And I had sold my car before I went to college. So I'd take the bus from Broomfield down to downtown Denver, and I'd just sit there and wait to see if I had a job for the day. And I'd say 75% of the time I'd get a job, and it, it could be you know, moving a household, or, or you could go to a high-rise and move an office floor from the eighth floor to the 10th floor. Well, when I was on these crews, I was working with seasoned veterans of the moving business that made moving their career, and there was a real science to moving. And it was really hard work. You know, after about a month, I, I really realized that this is something that I, I just I couldn't do right now because it was t- taking 12 hours of my day. And, and, you know, I still was a member of a college golf team where I have scholarship. You know, that, that was a good experience, too. Like I said, I did it for about a month. I called the golf club back and begged for my job. So um, you're now graduated from college. And what's your first job out of college? Well, actually, it was Bighorn. And I have to step back a little bit to explain that. So when I was a junior at Colorado and I was working at the ranch, Mike Grenier and a buddy of his moved from Boston to Denver. And they rented a condo on the golf course where I worked. Ironically, that condo development Mike lived in was built by Al and Mary Martha Feld, who have been members here since the 90s. But uh, Mike uh, moved out to Colorado to get in the mortgage banking business, and his roommate ended up going to work for the Colorado Rockies, which was a new franchise. You know, Mike was doing the mortgage banking business during the week, and he decided he wanted to look for a job on the weekends. So uh, he played some golf and, you know, worked quite a bit at a young age. And so he went and approached the golf pro at the ranch, country club, and asked if there was any part-time work. And there really wasn't any available, but I remember the pro, Ed, who's still there today, telling me that, you know, I like him so much, I'm going to find a couple shifts. So Mike started working at the ranch along, you know, we were working together. And after about a year, Mike decided he wanted to give the golf business a shot. He wanted to change careers. So he continued to work at the ranch. And like I said, I was still going to college. And then as the season was closing and the summer ending, uh, Mike's looking for an opportunity in a warm environment. And a pro working at the ranch at the time knew somebody that worked at Bighorn. And Mike went out there first season and was a golf host and really enjoyed it and then he actually came back to Denver and by this time I was in my senior year at Colorado Mike needed a place to stay for a while 
And at the time, I was living on the hill in Boulder. He, he lived with me for, I don't know, I think it was four or five weeks. And it was a, we had a great time. It was right when uh, school was ending. Those are good memories. Mike was going to work at the ranch, but, you know, four or five weeks into him returning to Colorado, Bighorn called, and they had a position open up. So he left. And I finished out my senior year. I, I had to uh, go to summer school, so that's why I graduated in August of 1994. And then Mike and I had stayed in touch. I, I was at a point in my life where I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't sold on the golf business or anything. I, I wasn't opposed to going back to college. I, I just wasn't sure, like any 22, 23-year-old. And, but, you know, in staying in contact with Mike, you, you know, he'd been out in the desert for almost a year now, and, and he really enjoyed it. And he said, why don't you come out for a season? So now you come out to the desert, and uh, you come to Bighorn. What's the first thing you do? Well, I'm a golf host. I, uh, at the time, it was a little bit different program. Um, it was smaller. We had the, you know, Westinghouse owned the club at the time, and we had the one golf course, and and we carried maybe ten or twelve golf hosts, and it was kind of a, it was kind of a big deal to get one of those positions, and you were more, you know, part of the team back then, and you had a role with playing with prospect, you know, a lot of prospective members and, and guests, and and. So you were involved. And you're in charge of their experience. I right. mean, it, it has to be a positive experience for them to go to the next step as far as becoming a member and a, a homeowner. Yeah, so when I moved out in October, as you know, um, all the clubs overseed during that month. So I couldn't train. You go from you know, the course being closed to being open. And I would drive the car paths, you know, when I could and look around, but you really can't get a feel for the course. And, you know, the mountains isn't the easiest course to get around your first time, especially when the people you're playing are relying on you. So the uh, first time I went out there, it was with a member, Jim Gagan, in a tournament that Mr. Hubbard put on right before the season started. And we're on about our third hole. Gagan looks at me and goes, you don't know where the hell you're going, do you? <laughs> I said, no. He goes, all right. He goes, I'll lead the way. But it was a great day and a great first day on the start of my career at Bighorn. Wow, that's it. Goes now, the Hubbard didn't own the place then. It was still Westinghouse. No, Hubbard didn't own it, and uh, this was the fall of, of 1994. And you know, I just started, so a couple of weeks later, I'm out hosting a group, and the starter comes up to me, and he said, "Mr. Hubbard's behind you." And when he comes up, just pull to the side and let him through. And I said, okay. I go, who's Mr. Hubbard? And he goes, uh, he's a member, but he's in negotiations to buy Bighorn. I go, okay. I go, where is he? And he goes, he's about a little over two holes behind you. And he said, I said, well, we may never see him. And he goes, he'll be here in about 10 minutes. And uh, sure enough, he came up behind us. And at that point, that was the fastest that I'd seen anybody play golf. So I continued uh, through the season as a golf host, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I couldn't have a, you know, a better job after um, just finishing college. Met uh, interesting people. I liked the environment. I did, and the hundred-dollar bills. You know, just the, the community we were in and the successful people. I just thought it was a good spot, and I was going to see where it could take me. So at that point. You know, I wanted to, if I was going to do this, I wanted to start working on my career and, and uh, try to advance. And the next season, I started in outside services. And that was, I did that for about half the season. 
And then from that point on, I worked in the shop half the time and continued to work outside half the time. So I was getting more experience. My, uh, my first day working outside service was probably pretty close to being my last day at Bighorn. A member pulled up in his Rolls Royce and he wanted a wash and a gas up. At the time, we, we didn't wash cars at the club. So if a member needed their car wash, we'd take it down the hill. And if they wanted gas, we'd gas it up. He said, Tony, take it down the hill, get a car wash, gas it up, and we'll see you in a few. And I go, okay. So I hop in the car and I'm heading down 74. First time in a Rolls Royce and driving down the hill and I'm getting close to the light on El Paseo. I start hitting the brakes and the car's not stopping. I'm used to my Cavalier or my Mustang that I drove in high school. And I'm just hitting these brakes. And I end up just closing my eyes and hitting the brakes as hard as I can. And I stop within an inch of the car in front of me. And it was one of those situations where you, you just, you know, you're kind of shaking and you can't function. So I just sat there for a minute and didn't move and composed myself and yeah, somehow made it to the car wash, made it back to the club. Everyone's like, where in the hell you been? Said, well, I had a little issue and I told them what happened. And they go, oh yeah, these babies are like stopping the school bus. And I go, yeah, I know that now. But that was my, that was my first day on the payroll. Talk about what could have been a life-changing experience right. for you. So now you get the Rolls Royce back. Everybody's safe and sound. Nobody knows anything different. And, and it sounds like at this point, Tony, You've changed from having a job to looking at it as a career. That's what I thought at the time. I wasn't fully there yet, but that was, yeah, that, that's what I thought. And, but, you know, I finished out that season, and then at the end of the season, uh, Mr. Hubbard officially took over Bighorn in April of 1996. And, you know, I'd seen him around the club, but I hadn't had any interaction. Um, and he addressed the staff, and we all met in the clubhouse dining room, and but Tony, when you first met in the dining room, today we view Mr. Hubbard as a, almost a force of nature. What was your first impression, the energy in that room when he first met you guys? Yeah, there was definitely an energy that surrounded him. and It was different. Uh, really, I was fascinated by him from day one, and, and that was really my first day. And I, I don't know how everyone else felt in the room, but... You just knew things were going to happen. And again, I don't know what that meant for me, but yeah, there's a storm coming for sure. <laughs> so now Mr. Hubbard takes over. Uh, you're working in the shop. Um, how does it then transition into you moving relatively quickly into a position of director of golf? Yeah, so that first full season... Um, under uh, Mr. Hubbard's leadership, uh, it was it was a really it was a good season. Uh, Donnie Coode was the director of golf, and I was continuing to learn and I was enjoying what I was doing. And then Donnie was moved to a different position, and there were some other changes in personnel going around the club. And this was I don't know ninety seven ninety eight ish I'm guessing and. You know, I, I was at a crossroads. Um, Mr. Hubbard made the decision to bring in a new golf director. And, you know, I called my father and I said, I told him I was thinking about leaving Bighorn and, and doing something different. And he asked why. And said, you know, Mr. Hubbard just bought the club and he's building a new course. And everything seems to be heading in the right direction. And it could be a great opportunity. And I replied that they're uh, 
hiring a new golf pro and a couple of people got passed over for the position and I just didn't see myself advancing. Ha ha. But we had this conversation and my dad asked if this new person left in a few years, do you think you would be considered for a promotion? And I said, no. And my dad responded, why? I couldn't answer the question. And there was a long pause. And my dad said, well, maybe if you'd quit screwing around and conduct yourself in a manner where you'd be considered for a promotion, things may change. And he went on to say that, that I had to realize that no one's gonna give me anything, I have to earn it. And until I understood this, I'm gonna face this in every job that I ever had. And we hung up. And I thought about it for a number of days and it really, really hit home. And it was a moment in my life that I'll never forget. And it changed everything for me. That next season, you know, I went in with a completely different attitude and a different mindset. I was all in. I had my A game from the moment I showed up and the moment I left each day. And I became involved in every aspect of the operation. I didn't play games. I was consistent. I had a lot of energy. And it paid off. You know, I just got out of my own way and, and bubble and, and started paying attention to what was going on around me. And, and looking at things from a, in a, an entirely different way. And it, it, I really, it felt great. And Billy Harmon was the new, new, new golf pro. And we, we really hit it off. And he was giving me more and more responsibility. And that really set the tone for what was going to happen in my career. What now goes on? Harmon's here. Um, what's the next big event? When does the Battle of Bighorn come into play in this? Well, this is a good time to bring it up, actually. So, nine, the club signed a three-year contract to host the Battle of Bighorn. Yes, sir. In, in 1999, the club signed a three-year contract to host the Battle of Bighorn. And that really was my first opportunity to show what I could do. And I was named the point man for the event. Uh, the Battle of Bighorn was a, a, it was a unique event in that the host club is responsible for running the event. <clears throat> Unlike Samsung that we hosted from 2004 to 2007, they actually bring in a team that lives here year round to run that event. But the Battle of Bighorn was all on the host club. And some of our responsibilities included selling tickets, uh, parking, shuttling. We had 200 volunteers, will call, credentials, all the hospitality, uh, public and member, uh, merchandise tents, media tents, media guide, uh, staging for the ABC compound, all the signage on property and off property. Uh, we had the member hospitality tent, a lot of moving parts. All of a sudden, you know, I'm thrust into meetings with IMG and ABC executives, and I'm, it points later on in the, as we got closer to the event, you know, I'm being asked to give directions and provide solutions to problems. It was really actually pretty cool at the time. And then Mr. Hubbard actually showed up a few days before the event, and we were really just working around the clock to get everything where it needed to be. And I... Not too long ago, uh, Mr. Hubbard and I were reminiscing about the Battle of Bighorn, and, and I brought up a story that I'm going to share with you. Uh, Mr. Hubbard was out golfing on the canyons 
and he was teeing off the sixth hole and I was in an area where we needed to have some signage and I was in the back of a pickup and every 20 yards I was jumping out of the pickup and hammering a stake in the ground and he's just looking at me and we continue on and uh, about 20 minutes later I get a call from one of our vendors who's installing a canopy tent in the golf house parking lot. You know, this was going to be the, the public hospitality area. You know, it was the middle of summer, so we need to have covered space with misters. We had TVs, food stations, a seating area, and a merchandise tent, uh, all in that golf house parking lot area. And I got a call that there was a forklift in the way, and they couldn't finish installing the, the, the tent. And so we got in a truck and drove out to the golf house, and we, we, we couldn't find the owner of the forklift. So I just, I just jumped in it, and the keys were in it, and somehow I got the forklift moving, and I wasn't exactly sure how to stop it at this point, so I'm just riding in this forklift. And all of a sudden, Mr. Hubbard and his crew are going from 9 to 10, and I just give them a little wave from the forklift and uh, continue on. So uh, I think later the next day, we were hosting a dinner at the club for Lincoln Financial, who was the sponsor for the Battle of Bighorn. And we had, didn't allow any parking in the clubhouse parking lot. There was no cars. So I'm out doing my thing, and I drive into the parking lot in my blazer, and I park. And as I'm parking, Mr. Hubbard is, is driving away from the clubhouse in his golf cart. And I'm getting out of the car, and he turns around and comes toward me and says, why in the hell do you get to park here? And I look at him, and I said, because I'm in charge of parking. And he starts to turn around, and he looks back at me and says, good answer. So um, later that day, I think, uh, Carl Cardinale called me, and he said, uh, Mr. Hubbard's got a guy coming into town that's run over 100 or 200 champion tour events, and he wants to see our plan for the event. And I go, okay. And he said, and he's going to spend the day with you. And I go, okay, all right, is it just me? And Carl goes, yeah. And uh, so it happened. So he showed up uh, the next uh, day or two. And we had a lot of ground to cover. We spent eight, nine hours together. And we started out at the golf house. And that was just a logical starting point. And I was telling him how the you know, where the folks were going to park, they were going to get shuttled to this point and going through all that was happening at the golf house. And I made a comment. He goes, how are they going to exit? And I said, well, at some point, we're going to flip the flow of traffic. So when we're dropping them off, it's going to be one way. And then we flip the switch. We're going to go the other way. He goes, that's a tough call in the middle of an event like this. And this is my first 10 or 15 minutes. I'm thinking, boy, we're off to not off to the best start here. And I said, well, let's get through, you know, everything we need to get through. And, and we did. We even drove outside the property and looked at all the signage on Cook Street and, and Washington Street. And we didn't go as far down as I-10 and, you know, Monterey and leading up to the club and where the cars would enter the property, where the media tent was and all the different access points. Um, you know, the ABC compound was just on the kind of south side of the driving range or west side of the Canyons driving range there. And uh, IMG's compound was where the steakhouse w was going to be. It didn't exist at this point. And we 
spent the whole day together, went through the program, covered everything, and we get back to the golf house. And he said, your only option with this setup is to reverse the flow of traffic. He goes, good call. And he was very pleased with how everything was organized. That had to make you feel awfully good coming from coming from that kind of experience and in, in running these. Also, Tony, this is experience at, that probably has served you very well in your career now because you're given responsibilities to really move an army through here and to set up an event that most people involved in golf at a country club never get to experience, the, the management of all this. It's not just you have to manage a team and you're under enormous pressure because this is national television. This is for Bighorn, but this is for consumption around the world. This is a big responsibility. Uh, it was an undertaking. And at this point, you're just running on adrenaline. And there is, you know, at the, leading up to the event, I've got two Bighorn radios. I have an IMG radio, an ABC radio, uh, radio from the shuttle company. And then I had a cell phone from the shuttle company and a cell phone from IMG. So I've got like a, you know, I felt like a police officer with the, with the belt I had on. And, you know, the event was scheduled to start for, it was scheduled to tee off at five o'clock. And we had a huge concern that everyone was going to kind of show up at the same time. And, you know, that would kind of be difficult to control and we were parking everyone on site between holes three four and five on the canyons that was land that was not developed and everyone coming to the event was going to enter the club at the canyon service gate when we had the will call set up in the canyons uh, maintenance area offices there so that was a convenient spot and then they'd f- travel up Andreas and turn in in front of the third tee box and park in that dedicated space we had. It was a lot of area in there. And from there, we had the shuttles that would pick everyone up and take everyone to the golf house. They'd go up the street and go down Canyon Drive and drop off. So we opened the gates at 2 o'clock. And I remember I was... I, I drove out there in my car and I got out of the car and I'm standing on the corner where they would turn in in front of the tee box. And at two o'clock, the cars start rolling in. And I'm like, this is great. And, you know, I was thrilled. And then I got a call from uh, our privacy officer and he said, the cars are backed up to Haystack. And I'm like, geez, everyone's getting here early. Good deal. Well, basically, the cars never stopped. And uh, as part of, uh, you know, we had 200 volunteers for the event. And my phone's ringing off the hook with different things. The fire marshals shut down one of the hospitality areas because of the canopy on top of the grill. And we got it all fixed. And you're just putting out all these fires and and uh, re- responding to to all these requests. And... So for the parking, I had, uh, through my relationship with Palm Desert Golf Coach, had gotten about 20 Palm Desert High School football players to volunteer and help get everyone parked. And we had our area that I mentioned earlier, plus I had an overflow plan uh, 
um, there was about 17 or 18 lots where I would park cars that couldn't fit in the designated area. And after 17 or 18 lots, it was just park on the street at that point. There was no plan. But we knew kind of through ticket sales how many carts, I mean, how many cars we'd have. You, you know, it's, you're guessing. And then there's same-day ticket sales, so you don't really know. And I got a call that we were running out of space in the parking lot. And I got up there, and I called the gate, and I said, don't let anyone in for five minutes. I'll call you back when we get this figured out. So I rerouted just a handful of cars, and I walked down the street and started parking them on the lot. And someone left let, at the gate, started letting people in. So I'm sitting there in the middle of the street, and I had a grid made up that showed how many cars I could park on each lot. And I didn't have it with me, but I, I just fortunately remembered it, and we striped all these lots. So I'm sitting there just kind of waving everyone in and, and going to one lot to the next lot. And it's just me. And I called the shuttle company, and I go, we're in overflow start picking up at the lots, and they did. They did a good job. Well, I came to find out that once I cleared out the parking lot, the high school team went to watch the event. <laughs> so, you know, it was just me. And, you know, ultimately I got everyone parked, and I came within one lot of really having to just park on the street. And, you know, I ran up the road back to my uh, car, and I was driving back up to the golf house. Pretty much everyone was in. And I drove past the golf house, and I kind of drove up to where Mr. Hagedon's home is and just looked down because uh, they were teeing off on number 10. And if you remember, we had the light the, the last you know, few holes on the front nine for the event. But I looked down on number 10, and I saw 5,000 people on one hole, and it was very cool. When this was over, Tony, was this, uh, it had to be a, a feeling of gratification, but also relief, because there was a lot of unknowns, even though you had planned and you had managed it well, there's still a lot of unknowns and a lot of things that can go on. But that was a very, very successful uh, event, not just, uh, but, but for Bighorn especially. You know, it really was. And I think at the time, I, I think we attributed $38 million in real estate sales to the Battle of Bighorn. Um, it was prime time on Monday night. You know, the, you had the Tiger Sergio arrival. And, you know, Tiger was just ready to start the Tiger Slam. And we had him for three years. Um, on a side note, Marty, uh, this is kind of funny. Uh, you know, Billy Harmon's the golf director and, and his brother Butch is, you know, Tiger's coach. And Tiger had just finished an event and he came down with an illness and Butch and Billy were talking and he said he's sick, he hasn't slept, he's, he's not eating, he's weak. So the golf staff, we all put some money on Sergio at four to one. And <laughs> he ended up winning one up on the 18th hole. A great, a great gambling story. But we weren't involved in any rulings. So, no, no, you know. no, no, no. Um, Okay, Battle of Bighorn. Um, Billy Harmon's still the director of golf at that time. How much time takes place between that and uh, a transition from you 
from your position into being director of golf? From the end of that first battle of Bighorn, it, it was it was about uh, two years, I'd say. Yeah, right about two years. And yeah. as your father had said to you, do everything you can so you're prepared for them to make that decision for you to be director of golf. I got to believe Battle of Bighorn had a lot to do with that image being one of a person who could handle any kind of responsibilities that were given to him. No, that that was my first big break. And, you know, the, the tournament really went off without a hitch. Yeah, I guess you could say that's what put me on the map at Bighorn. You know, it, it, looking back on it, it, it did happen over a quick period of time. So um, we the next year we had the second battle of Bighorn, which was uh, Lee Trevino and Sergio versus Tiger and Jack Nicklaus. And at the time, I, I think it still holds true today, that was the largest payday for Jack in his career. Wow. And the final one was uh, David Duvall and Kari Webb with uh, Tiger Woods and Annika Sornstam. The wind blew like 40 miles an hour. But, you know, we got through the second battle, and we're just continuing on in, in the golf operations with, with Billy as the uh, golf director. And then, you know, all through this, you know, Mike Rainier working side by side and all this activity and, and in all the things you deal with in golf operations. Just after the middle of the next season, uh, Billy decided that he wanted to teach. That was what, you know, he's one of the, gr the greatest teachers I've ever seen. Or he is the greatest teacher I've ever worked with. It's fantastic, and, and that's what he wanted to do. So he was leaving his position as golf director. And then in April of 2001, I was 29 years old. Well, before that, I had called my dad and I said, Billy's leaving to go teach. And he goes, what does that mean for you? And I said, well, we'll find out. And I go, I don't know. You know, I think, you know, I said, they may bring in someone with this is a more experience. You know, we're all pretty young here, and, but we'll see what happens. He goes, all right, keep me posted. Okay. So we get to April of 2001, and I'm 29 years old. And I've got a meeting with Mr. Hubbard in the boardroom. And I go in. And we exchanged a few pleasantries. And he said, Tony, he goes, effective September 1st, you're going to be the golf director of Bighorn. And from that point, I don't remember anything that was said. And I left the room. I uh, didn't really know what to do. It just was a lot to, a lot to think about at the time. And uh, the first person I called was, was my dad. And uh, I said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. He goes, what? And I told him. And he didn't believe it. <laughs> and he actually said something like, Hubbard's got bigger balls than I thought he had. And... You know, it was daunting but exciting at the same time. And um, it was, again, something I'll never forget. 
And, you know, so going into that next season, I was the director of golf and, and Mike Rainier was the head pro. And, you know, we came up through the ranks together and, and it was an interesting time at the club. You know, the, the Canyons course opened in the end of 1998. We've just hosted three Battle of Bighorns. And I think in 98, 99, and 2000, we sold 225 golf memberships. So the place was just exploding with this energy and new people. And it, it was crazy times. And... Here you have Mike and I running this golf department, and, and golf was the center of activity around that time. And you know, we're, we're young, and, and I, after I spoke to my father the first time, I called him back, and I said, Dad, I don't know if I can do this. And he said, yeah, you can. And I said, Dad, I, I can't do everything. And he said, he said, do you know what has to be done? And I thought about it, and I go, yeah, I d yes, I do. And he said, well, that's what you need. That's what's most important, because now, now you just have to hire people that can do the things that need to be done. And I thought about that, and uh, that, made, that made sense. Um, you made a comment earlier, Marty, about my experience with the Battle of Bighorn, and... Uh, one of the things that it, it did do is that it, it gave me confidence that, you know, I, I knew I could coordinate a complex operation involving a lot of people. And log logistics was definitely a strength. And I was, as I was preparing for this podcast this week, um, I didn't know it at the time, but my experience with the Battle of Bighorn was very valuable in co coordinating a successful transition season without the clubhouse. Um, that was the point that I kind of wanted to get to when we got a little bit off track, but um, it, it, it was. And there's a lot less available lots now than there were back in, in that era, that's for sure. But I think when you're thrust, again, circumstances dictate. Um, but I think when you're thrust into something like you were with the Battle of Bighorn, it really did serve you well. And that was my point before to what you not knowing what's going to transpire in the future. But those are experiences that normally people in your position don't get to have because that's really some management skills. It's delegation. It's putting the right people in the right places. That's a that's an invaluable, I would think experience no and it, it teaches you to deal with adversity and you get things done what really you know it, 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 i really realized during the battle at bighorn um what resources the, the the club had um when we were doing the parking um a, a rut developed in the dirt area where the shuttles were picking up the patrons and it, the shuttle got st stuck and it was holding up everything and I made one call and within five minutes we had a water truck and 10 guys with shovels and you know in a, in a later battle at Bighorn there was a curb and that people were tripping over and you know within five ten minutes 
there's a couple guys with curb cutters just took the curb out. You know, it's, it's just a, an amazing group to be a part of. Well, but again, you have to have leadership that's decisive, that takes action, and, and gets things done. I mean, that's the philosophy here and always has been the philosophy here, that you just get things done and people and your resources are extremely important. They are. They are. And, you know, th at that time, you know, the canyons was developing and, and we had all those resources and it was great to be able to take advantage of them. Tony, why don't we pause right here so we can have a message from Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers. You're buying more than a diamond ring or you're buying more than a watch when you come to Leeds and Son. You're buying integrity. You're buying value. You're buying the best products in the world brought to the Coachella Valley with great care. Leeds and Son, the Coachella Valley's jewelry experts. And now back with Tony Ogrodnik. Tony, you're now director of golf. You've had these experiences. Um, I'm, briefly, if you could, just talk us about, tell us about this director of golf experience that you've had that then let you or allowed you to be uh, considered uh, to your present position? Well, you know, at the time, like I said, it was a real growth period for the club. And, uh, you know, Mike and I were, were thrust into these leadership positions at a, at a fairly young age. And at the time, the golf director was responsible for four budgets. Uh, you had golf operations golf pro shop, outside service, and carts, which dealt with the fleet and the repair program that we had with Francisco. So going into the 2002 season, uh, Mike and I are responsible for doing our first budgets. And the budgets were heavily scrutinized at this time. Uh, the developers, you know, the investors were subsidizing the deficit, you know, at the time. And when you put together a budget, you better have your ducks in a row. So Mike and I spent, I don't know how many hours, researching every line item and every budget for the last five years just to educate ourselves and get as familiar as we could with the operation. And we ended up turning in a budget proposal. And we had the meeting with all the other department heads and managers and Joe, our CFO, kind of headed up the meeting. And we, we had turned in this proposal and it was in a binder. And every line item had an explanation with how we came up with that number. And some things we increased on, some things we took out completely, some there was new light items for new ideas that we had. And Joe stood up before the meeting and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce two of our newest managers. And he goes that are turning in their budget for the first time. And I'm gonna pass this budget around people because this is how you do a budget. And that, I look back on that and uh, 
you know, realized at the time that to really run any business, you got to have intimate knowledge of every dollar that's coming in and every dollar that's going out and why. And that's something I continued to do throughout my career. Um, as I said earlier, uh, that 2001 era, you know, golf was a real focus in the community. We had all those new members join uh, when the, the Canyons course opened. And, you know, like I said, the golf was the center and there's many events. And the one thing about golf is that along with your events, you host a lot of functions. So you always have to work hand in hand with the food and beverage team on every golf event. And basically, when I have a golf tournament that I'm in charge of and that line items in my budget, you know, I'm the client for the food and beverage department. And, you know, I'm responsible for these line items. And if we go over budget, you know, I have to be accountable. And, you know, you have a big party and you get the bill the next day and you start looking at it and you go, oh my gosh, we sure did drink a lot last night. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you work with, in golf, you work with marketing and, and, and like I said, the food and beverage team and the chefs, you have outside service, which is part of the golf operations. You know, that's a heartbeat of the club that time we had, you know, we were up to 30 or 40 golf hosts. So as golf director with, with all that, you're, you're managing about 75 or 80 people. And I think that's kind of a unfortunate misnomer about the golf department. There is a tendency to believe that, um, well, most of the guys here believe, Oh, I could do that job. That wouldn't be that difficult. And, that's the way you want to make it look because you don't need to draw back the curtain and show all the work that's necessary and all the things that go on behind the scenes. You want it to look to the public as an easy situation because that's part of their enjoyment. They don't need to know all the work that goes on behind. But that serves you well even now as a general manager because you, your job is to make, as it was as the director of golf, and now for the whole club, everybody's experience be as positive as it possibly can be. But that's why I say there's this stuff that goes on behind the curtain that people don't realize sometimes. That's correct. You don't you don't want anyone to ever see the chaos. And you know, in golf, you have events, you have daily, um, just activity. Uh, you're also working with uh, the superintendents and the golf course managers on a daily basis. You know, there's that aspect. Then you have the actual pro shop. You know, you have a store that's open, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And you have soft goods, you have hard goods, and, you know, you just have to make sure you have everyone, everything covered. You can't run out of tees or pencils or anything like that. And, you know, that goes back to that exercise of, of going through the budget you know you you know what you need and when you need it 
And you'd have to treat it all as a business. Correct. Correct. And like I said, in those years, we were held accountable. I mean, to the point where on a one-day member guest, if if you're $1,000 over budget, you know, you better have a pretty damn good explanation. Well, again, you must have covered those bases, as Joe first said with your with your first budget, because now we get to a very critical part of the club's history. We have almost a 20-year period where a lot of stuff goes on, and you've covered a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. But now we enter into a period that I'd like you to talk about where we probably have accomplished more and done more at this club in the last five years, uh, almost uh, more than took place in the first 20 years of operation. So tell me how that evolves and how you end up being an integral part of what's gone on. Well, I was uh, ended up being golf director for about uh, 14 years. And, you know, at that time and, and, you know, from 2001 to 2014, you know, we had um, the spa and we had the Canyons course and the golf house. And then we added uh, the steakhouse in 2006. And then later on, we converted the turn building into a Starbucks and marketplace. So there was always continued growth. At the end of 2014 is, is when I went from being golf director to general manager. So I'm, I'm closing in on five years right now. And right when that happened, we were uh, building the vault in 2015, and it was scheduled to open uh, November of 2015 and at the time we had no idea that we were going to uh, build a clubhouse so this was my first real involvement in a construction project and it was a a good little entry-level class for the clubhouse you know I learned a lot and you know we did open the vault on our November date and with great efforts um, from a lot of people, we were able to sell out all the memberships in the vault. And it's just been a fantastic amenity for the club. You know, you're balancing that with your new role and, you know, just learning as much as you can. Like I said, I'd, I'd been here a while and I've worked with all the departments and I had a pretty good handle on uh, what to expect. Um, I'd had good relationships with all of our other general managers and had multiple conversations over the years on how to handle certain different, you know, different situations that come up with whether they're um, with with the staff or with members and 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 the the conversations went both ways with all of our upper management. You know, you just kind of talk things through. So through those conversations, you, you become familiar with 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 what to expect with the position let's just put it that way um, then we fast forward another year and we start uh, talking about building a clubhouse it became a reality and tony you're thrust into this general manager's position um i i imagine you're excited i imagine that uh, there's uh you realize there's a lot to do, and now this clubhouse is thrust upon you. 
this is an enormous uh, thing to take on. What was your feeling at that time? And what now transpires so that you can go forward and do this wonderful clubhouse that we now have and do it in a period of time that's just unbelievable to get things done? Well, it, it was a, it was an exciting time, and there was, I can think of three immediate challenges. One, we have to move out of the current clubhouse and relocate everyone in temporary facilities and prepare for a transition season without a clubhouse. And then on top of that, we have to actually build it. So the, the, the focus for me from, from the start, when we made the announcement to the membership in, in December 2015, was, you know, we had five months, we had four months to move out of the clubhouse into temporary facilities. That wasn't a lot of time. And, you know, we obviously had to get on it right away. We, the last day in the clubhouse was May 3rd. And between May 3rd and May 8th, we had to move everyone into their temporary facilities. So um, the first thing I did was go through the clubhouse and, you know, we have to relocate administrative offices, kitchen staff, concierge, the pro shop, ballet, um, all the parking, employee member, golf host, the accounting department, marketing department, housekeeping. Um, you've got F&B management, cart barn, cart repair, merchandise storeroom, bag room, I mean, cart staging, loading dock, storage, all that. Um, had to be re relocated from the clubhouse and surrounding area over the canyons. And we had to get it done quickly. So it was going to it was going to take a coordinated effort from from everybody involved in every department, and we we came up with a plan. And the good thing was is that we had to move out in May, and we'd get into our facilities, and then we had the summer to kind of tweak things. And 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 just prepare the transition season and in layout for the. Uh, members when they returned in the fall but we we moved the staff out may 3rd to may, th may 3rd through may 8th and every department when they were moved was live in their temporary facilities within four to eight hours that day and, and we did it over a five-day period and then may 9th the demolition started so you know between January and May we had most of our temporary facilities in place to take care of all the staff and we had our logistical plan on how we're going to handle all the traffic and, and take care of our members needs and again we, we uh, had the summer to, to work on it and we did change a number of a thing number of things around just because everyone was getting familiar with their new uh, surroundings. And it was emotional for a lot of people moving out, a lot of the staff moving out of the clubhouse. I was, I was kind of surprised. 
not only, I mean, again, it affects people in different ways, but this new clubhouse that you're taking on and building, uh, and it doesn't stop the operation of the club, as you've said. There's still a club and a membership that you have to serve, and it has to be done in the best way possible because that's the level of professionalism and the level of service that people expect here. And even though you're building this clubhouse, that has to continue. You know, it has to continue, and you have to look at everything. It's like something as simple as car washing. You know, we had to find a place to wash cars. I mean, that's what people want. You have to give it to them. And we're very fortunate that we have this campus of facilities. And, you know, before we demolished the clubhouse, you know, Mike and I made calls to other clubs that went through the same process. And it was, it was just a horror story. You know, revenues were off 70%. They laid off half the staff. Um, nothing good came out of these conversations. But again, you know, Mr. Hubbard always provides us with a lot of resources and to be successful. And we had our, our campus of facilities that we could take advantage of. And we did. And the members had a good season. Everyone enjoyed it. Um, thank goodness it was one season. We didn't have to go back for a second. And one of the things I'm most proud of during that transition season is we increased revenue over the prior year, which was unheard of. Unbelievable. Yeah. It also has to be a big plus. And this is talked about a lot, and I know we're going to touch on it as we go along. But the staff that you have here, the kind of people that have a pride of ownership in they this do. club, and that they really care about that experience and they take pride in it, that has to be something that other clubs weren't fortunate enough to have. And to maintain that staff over a period of time like this is also something that's got to be, you got to be very proud of, both of the way that it was managed and the way that they accepted it. No, they did. And, you know, the staff here, they worked their ass off, and they did during the transition and, and the transition back into the new clubhouse. But there were some concerns that, you know, we didn't know how much the members were going to support the club during that transition season. Um, you just don't know. It's the unknown. You know, are they are, the, are you going to serve as many meals? Are they going to play as much golf? Um, we knew we had some limitations on the size of our pro shop, but um, – we, we felt we had a really good plan and, you know, we came up with the, with the Camp Bighorn and, and it, it really excited the staff. It was something new. It was different. We were heading into a new era. The club was going to change forever. Um, you know, it was, it was an, again, it was a neat time to be at the club. I mean, you know, that whole summer. And In some ways, an experience like this brings people even closer together. No, it did. We were in tight quarters, and there, it just energized everyone. And, and we're making these adjustments kind of on the fly all summer, like the remodel project in the golf house. You know, you, you start looking, okay, we don't have a men's locker room. We don't have a poor house. We've got one TV in the marketplace, and we have three TVs in the golf house. Hmm, probably not going to get us through the season, right? So we kind of changed direction on that. And we always had plans in the golf house to uh, increase the size of the kitchen, which we needed to do, and it still wasn't big enough. Uh, we added the bar. And then everything else happened that summer. You know, we went from uh, three TVs to 20 TVs. We, we added in shade structure and umbrellas, and 
we created the bistro and we, we added a terrace on the east side of the, the, the golf house. And, and really, if we needed to in that space, we could have, we could have accommodated 300 people you know, for events. There was that much room there. And we, we added in carpet, which was a huge plus, and, and, and threw a little paint on the golf house, and we're and, ready to go. And these are benefits that we continue to enjoy for in, sure. in most yeah. of the cases. No, it, uh, and as we were ending the transition season, uh, there were many comments from members that, you know, they were going to miss the golf house. They, they kind of faded away once we moved into the new place. <laughs> but, and that's the plan. Yeah. But it was, I think, you know, having experienced that period of time, it really was, um, I think people got together in a way that they hadn't got together in the past. It really was a throwback season, if you will. Everybody was in it together. You know, it, it was. And one of the, the things about Bighorn that makes it unique is is we do have all these facilities, and everyone was in pretty tight quarters for that season. I mean, when you know, now when you look at Bighorn, you, you've got you can have lunch in the poorhouse, you can have lunch in the men's locker room, the marketplace, the ladies' locker room, the golf house, and. You know, when you're having lunch at the golf house, you're not thinking about the 20 guys in the locker room or the 30 guys in the poor or whatever. So, you're, you know, you, you get your space. And uh, we, we became a little more claustrophobic that year, but it was fun. Everyone enjoyed it. I, I remember the the uh, cart staging area that we put in, we, you know, we took out the putting green and put in the cart staging area. Some days you go over there, there'd be 40, 50 carts, you know, on that space. And I agree with you. I think it was a great time, but also the right amount of time. Because now this clubhouse that we have, which is unbelievable, um, and a show place for clubs throughout the world, not only in the Valley, um, this really becomes now uh, something that you do in 18 months from the beginning of demolition to the time we opened it in November. Yeah, no, you know, it was 18 months. And I, I wanted to, uh, when we moved into the new clubhouse, I, I wanted to kind of document what was accomplished. You know, it was 18 months. We actually constructed the building in 16 months, as everyone knows. But it all started in May of 2016. And um, that month we you know, moved out. We demolished the clubhouse. The transition plan is executed. All the staff successfully moves into their temporary facilities. And, you know, May 9th, operations went live with no clubhouse. And then that summer, we constructed the two new hardcourt tennis courts. We added a pickleball court. Um, we also converted tennis court two and three to hydro clay court. And we re resurfaced the original court one. And if you recall, we, we, uh, the new pool area was completed that first summer. And during that summer is when we did the complete remodel of the golf house in 75 days. And we also converted the marketplace to serve breakfast and lunch with no kitchen, which uh, really served us well in the summer when the golf house was down and the whole transition season. Um, so July 2016, we... The construction of the clubhouse is underway, and then we fast forward to November, and the transition season uh, officially begins. And as I mentioned earlier, that we, we surpassed uh, prior season revenue that season. 
And uh, we also, that November is when the club signed John Rahm to represent Bighorn, which was uh, very exciting. And, and the, you get through the transition season, you go into the summer of 2017, we're, we're right on the heels of having to open this clubhouse, um, which stayed on schedule despite losing 25 days to heat and rain. And, uh, you know, when we opened the pickleball court, the first at the beginning of the transition season, it was very popular. So we added a second court that summer and, and uh, relocated the horseshoe pit. And then October, we're getting close to the grand opening. And the last step, we're installing new pavers from the clubhouse entry to Highway 74. And October 16th, we get the permit from the city to, to move staff and equipment into the building. And then on November 1st, Mr. Hubbard and friends have first dinner service in the new clubhouse. And as you know, we opened November 4th, 2017. So that's kind of a, a synopsis of what was accomplished in 18 months. And again, I don't expect you to say this, but I'm going to. That doesn't happen without strong leadership. And I congratulate you, I, uh, Carl, Mr. Hubbard, uh, your whole staff, because it it just doesn't happen. It's not magical. No, no. This takes it was, a lot of work. It, it was a, it was a team effort, and you know the, the amazing thing was along that during that eighteen months we added fifty six new members, you know along the way, which we we didn't expect to happen. It no one joins a club without a clubhouse. They wait till it's built. And it just didn't happen here. And, and, you know, people wanted to be part of what was going on. And Mike's giving these tours without a clubhouse, and people are excited. You know, they liked the transition. They thought it was fun. The golf house was happening. And, you know, you've got the steakhouse. And, and they just said, well, we're just going to join now. Well, and again, that's also a credit to the staff because you're asking people to believe. You're asking people to buy in even before they see tangible results. Right. But I think that Bighorn's reputation from before and Mr. Hubbard's reputation about being a person who gets things done certainly allowed people to take that chance. For sure. And then, you know, moving into the clubhouse, uh, all the managers had a role in the construction of the clubhouse. Everyone had input. So a lot of the directors and managers that, um, kind of had a feel for the building, all right? So we get this uh, permit to, to move in October 16th. And on the 17th, this is just food and beverage, okay? I mean, we still have to, you know, you've got the bag room and the cart repair area and the pro shop and, and all, all the equipment that goes along with a clubhouse. But on the 17th, we had 65 pallets of equipment and supplies delivered to the clubhouse. And, you know, we had about, with the kitchen and the servers, we had uh, about 80 guys that were there that time of year. And we split them in groups of two. And we had an AM shift and a PM shift. And you just started breaking down these pallets. And you've got the staff, they don't even know where a bathroom is because they haven't been in, they've been off all summer. You know, they haven't been in the building that much. And you're trying to organize the kitchen and the staff break room and all the, you know, where are you, you going to put all the supplies? Where's the ketchup going to go? I mean, it just, and we didn't have a lot of time. And we didn't, we, we eventually, you know, received the, um, 
okay to move in on November 3rd. So we opened November 4th. So didn't have much time to prepare. We're debuting a menu with 31 new items on it. And we opened November 4th and we have 350 covers. And it was something else. And also you, you know, in a business like this staff, even though we have great continuity, you're always adding to the staff. And in some very key positions over this period of time, have we added people? Because your goal, I'm sure, is to make, continue to grow this club uh, in every way possible. So you have a, a new chef in the, in the steakhouse. Uh, we have a new food and beverage manager now uh, in Juan. We had a great one in Paul. Uh, every time you make a change, I know people are going, oh my goodness, I really like the people behind this. But in every case, we've really improved the value of service and product oh, yeah. that we have. Well, you know, the club is, is a lot different today than when I started five years ago. Um, just, you know, this, the, the clubhouse is 80,000 square feet. It's being utilized more. It replaced a clubhouse that was half the size. Um, yeah, and then, you know, this last year, um, there were some changes with some management. You know, uh, Cheeto moved into his role as golf course manager, and he's been here a long time and does a fantastic job. And uh, now he's seeing overseeing both golf courses and the common areas of the HOA. Um, you had uh, Carl Williams moved into the privacy director position. And you already mentioned Juan. Juan was actually, I, I think, with all the changes we did have, we, we, it was the only person that we hired. Um, you know, uh, Kelly Levy went from uh, charities director to marketing director. And yeah, we had uh, a number of changes and um, everyone's really uh, flourishing in their new role. I'm going to ask you too, Tony, some questions here about your management philosophy and uh, some other things. And if you don't mind, we'll just go through those. And then I'd like to finish up with maybe you giving a, a couple of thoughts about what you see as the future. Um, and I'm going to start with the first thing is, what do you look for when you're hiring people here? Well, you know, culture is a big part of Bighorn for the membership and the staff. And, and really, for me, I, I, you know, and I've refined this over the years. You, you continue to grow in, in everything you do. And, you know, what I look for at the beginning is personality traits. Um, you know, you can train an employee on products and services and, and you know, we're it's more difficult to train someone or it's impossible sometimes is integrity, self-confidence, work ethic. You know, that, that's what I look for. Um, urgency, resiliency, you know, and are they a cultural fit? Um, dependable. You know, I, I really made a point in the last five or six years, you know, I want to hire someone who's looking to start or continue a career and not just have a job. We're lucky here that a lot of our service staff have made this their career all over the club, not just food and beverage. I'm talking all areas. And 
that's a plus. I have conversations with general managers around the country and, and, and they live in cities where they're kind of changing out staff every couple of years. They hire college kids who, who need a job to pay bills and they leave and there's no continuity. Um, so I, I really look for individuals that, that want to make Bighorn their career. Uh, in line with that, Tony, what do you attribute the longevity of the people that work here? Because we're really fortunate that some of these people have been here more than 20 years. Right. And that's unheard of in this business. We're, we're actually, you know, approaching a group that's going to be here 30 years pretty soon, that we're here actually before the the uh, golf course opened in 1991. Um, I, you know, I'm in my 25th or 26th season. And, you know, there's several reasons. There, there is. And one of them is, is consistent leadership. Um, you know, over the years, there's been employees that have left for what they thought was a better opportunity, you know, only to realize that the person who hired them is gone after two years. And if you're in the club business, that's usually a GM or a club president. And before they know it, they're out. They're looking for another job. And we've had consistent leadership throughout my career here. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, and, you know, as we know, the Bighorn promotes from within. And they can continue to educate their employees so when needed, they can, they can handle a larger role. And, you know, another part of it is that the members support the club and the service staff. When I say support the club, they use all the facilities. And if you're an employee here that's part of a service gratuity pool or a cash tip pool, you're compensated well. Uh, the membership here are very generous and they recognize outstanding service. Uh, then you also have you know, the annual holiday bonus and the scholarships for employees and their children I already mentioned the continuing education. There's a lot of support in those areas, and they're all part of our longevity. And, and you know, lastly, and really, I've seen this time and time in my career here, and, and this is probably the most important. If you're employed at Bighorn and you're loyal and you're part of the Bighorn family, there's an invisible security blanket that's cast over you and your family. And should you deal with a hardship, an illness, a tragedy, you know, the club and the members will support you and, and that is priceless. It, it really is, you can't put a number on that. And it happens every year. And you know, we currently have an employee whose spouse is dealing with a serious illness and the club, Mr. Hubbard and the members you know, I've all covered expenses for the family for several months, and it's just outstanding support, and you don't find that everywhere. Well said, and I think that that goes uh, not only unnoticed sometimes, but uh, it's, it's something that goes on again behind the scenes that is about the culture of this club. And uh, it, it, it truly is uh, unique. 
Um, what, Tony, is your management philosophy? And I'm sure it's evolved, but how do you view your management philosophy today? Well, um, it's, it has evolved. It's continued to evolve. And, you know, a lot of management styles can be dictated by corporate cultures, especially when you're, you know, someone that's it's homegrown like I am. Uh, we've had managers over the years whose, whose style may have clashed with our culture. And, you know, when that happens, um, to be honest with you, they don't last long or they struggle in their time here. And, you know, for me, I've always had an intellectual curiosity and I, I'm always trying to figure things out and, and how they relate to one another. And I, I do dedicate you know, a lot of time to studying concepts, people, and, and I ask a lot of questions. Uh, I'm definitely open to feedback from my team and I'm willing to try something new to achieve results. You know, I don't take things as granted. Um, I think when you have a type of openness like this, it, it gives managers and coworkers a chance to buy into new ideas because you have to, you know, stay on the cutting edge and, and, and come up with new ideas. You know, just because we've always done something a certain way doesn't mean that there's not a better way. And, you know, I'm constantly instilling in staff uh, the importance to stay focused on what is relevant. And, you know, like I said, I have a lot of conversations with GMs from around the countries, country and operation managers. And just a couple of weeks ago, I had one of them, you know, gentleman called me and we were talking about food and beverage and he asked what time we stopped serving breakfast. And I said, we don't. And he goes, you don't? Isn't that a hardship on the kitchen? And I go, well, it might be, but... If a member wants an omelet for dinner, he gets an omelet for dinner. I mean, that's the way we do business. We make it a priority, and it is relevant. And there's a reason why McDonald's serves breakfast 24 hours a day now. Because habits change, and you got to adapt to that. So you always have to focus on what's relevant. And, and that's what I think about a lot in my management style. I, I provide support to all managers and, and, and departments, and I'm always crystal clear as to what my expectations are and you know at different times the level of support changes based on what is happening in the department you know people can come and go and changes happen and that department deserves your attention more than others might at that time um, you know to develop a person you do have to give them space to reach their full potential and you know I'm I say quite a bit to my managers when they're dealing with something. I say, if, if, if everything ran perfectly, we wouldn't need managers. And that's the truth. There's a reason you're here to handle these type of situations. And I want to make people better. Uh, it's happened to me in my career here, and I'm still continuing to grow. And there's empowerment when you can handle adversity and difficult situations on your own. Um, my job is to give all the staff and managers the tools, resources, support, and knowledge, you know, to be successful. Ultimately, ultimately, you know, I mean, I want managers to be the stars of their department, not me. 
My job is not about me. It's about Bighorn and, and motivating and directing a staff to deliver an exceptional experience. It's just, it's just not about, you know, look at Tony, look at Tony. It's about results and execution, period. And if something is going wrong, it'll get fixed. It may take some time, but I promise you it will get fixed. Thank you, Tony. Um, two other questions. Who is your biggest influence or has been the biggest influence in your life? Well, there's several people, um, individuals that have influenced, that have had influence into shaping the person I am today. Um, my parents, of course. Um, my peers. You know, everyone I work with, everyone has their own expertise. And you learn and, and take things from everyone you come in contact with, whether they're, you know, your fellow managers, directors, or members, or anybody. You just, you, you, need, to, you, you need to always educate yourself. So there's a lot of people that have had influence in my life. And Carl Cardinelli, you know, he's, he's brilliant. He's amazing. And, you know, the, the time I've spent with him the last five years and, and the last 25 is just priceless. But the, the most influential person, without question, would, would have to be uh, R.D. Hubbard. You know, he's, he's affected and impacted my life more than anybody. And I'm forever grateful the opportunity he gave me at a young age when, you know, everyone was like, okay, he's pretty young there. We like him, but we'll see what happens. And I've continued to have opportunities you know, he, uh, he's a tactician, very insightful, perceptive. You know, when you talk about relevance, no one's more relevant than R.D. Hubbard. He's pragmatic, and he's a marketing genius. Uh, I've learned a lot from him over the years. You know, from day one, as I said earlier, I was fascinated, you know, with how he managed people and how he manages business. You know, for 25 years, I've taken advantage of every opportunity to learn from him. Mr. Hubbard, if you're listening, I just want to say thanks for the education. You know, I, if, you know, certain things I've taken away from him. I, you know, trust your instincts. You know, every dollar matters. You know, they're always prepared read everything you never assume don't panic or overreact and you know have leverage and in many cases you know knowledge and information are, are leverage and that's a lot of the things i've taken away from my experience with mr hubbard and uh you know like i said earlier our budgets were heavily scrutinized and and we were accountable at a young age for the numbers we produced so it's been Pretty awesome experience. And now a question that I've asked everyone that's done this podcast, but again, you're at a, still a very young age, but it still, I think, is um, something that could be insightful. And that is, what would you tell a 20-year-old Tony Agrodnik? Well, in my time here, I have hired a, a many young people and... Uh, 
I, I kind of sit them all down at some point. And I, now in this role, I, I kind of do it in all departments, and I, I've done it a number of times this year. And it, it, this is what I tell them. I say, you know, it's a very simple equation to be successful. The more you produce, the more you earn, period. And it's that simple. It, it doesn't matter if you're a plumber, a wide receiver, or an attorney. The more you produce, the more you make. And the bottom line is that you have to make a choice at some point in your life if you want to be a producer or a non-producer, okay? And you can have a great education, and it's very important in the workforce, and it's going to open more doors and give you more opportunities. But when you get in the real world, if you don't produce, you don't produce. So whatever level or of whatever level you get in of the workforce you get into, you just have to make that decision. And... You know, it happened with me in my career, and, you know, there are roles for non-producers in the workforce, and, you know, that's the guy who shows up on time and is dependable, and he has a limited role in his organization. You know, there's the need for that out there, but these young people have to decide, you know, which road they're going to take and get out of your bubble, start paying attention, and see what the hell's going on around you. That's what I tell them, and... I also tell them advice that I got from my father when I was a teenager or a young adult. I can't remember. He said, Tony, you know, throughout your life, he said, if you follow a gold truck, he goes, along the way, you're going to pick up some nuggets of gold. He goes, and then if you follow a manure truck your whole life, you're going to pick up some crap along the way. And that's true in your professional and personal life. You have to surround yourself with good people. And that, that's what I tell my young employees. You know, it starts now. Good words from Dad once again. Um, Tony, now, what does the future hold? Not just for you, but how do you envision the future for uh, the club and for the, the growth of the club? Well, you know, uh, Bighorn... You know, we're successful because we have a superior product. You know, you know no one delivers the, the world-class facilities, the service, the lifestyle that uh, the Bighorn does. And we have to continue to raise the bar and, and continue to deliver an exceptional experience. And, you know, we're always developing new concepts and amenities and ways to better serve the community. That's just what we do. And we'll continue to do that. And, you know, there are multiple projects being discussed for the future. And if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> I'm not ready for that. Uh, Tony, I really want to thank you for taking the time today. I know that it's uh, not something that you're totally comfortable with, especially tooting your own horn, but I want to tell you the accomplishments that you've had here are unbelievable. The way this club has grown under your leadership and certainly building upon other leadership that's been here before, taking nothing away from those people. But 
that where the club stands now is on top of the world, and I know your goal is to continue to keep it there. But I really want to thank you for doing this because I think it helps the whole membership and the people that live here about what is the culture, what is the leadership of this club, and what's the thoughts for the future. So again, I really thank you for doing this. Well, thank you. Enjoyed it. Okay, and thanks again to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers for being a supporter of the Bighorn Podcast, and we'll see you when we do the next episode.